<clears throat> Cue motivational music. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Dean and I'm a designer on a quest. A quest to further understand the creative industry and learn as much as this noggin will hold. Join me as I share my discoveries and tap into the minds of some of the most well-respected creatives in the world. This is my creative therapy. Today I'm joined by Dave Burse, who in my opinion is an absolute black belt in all things creative. He has been a musician, illustrator, stand-up comedian, poet, radio DJ, television presenter, advertising creative director, author, and a public speaker. You can find out more about Dave at daveburst.com. That's Dave, B-I-R-S-S.com. He's got an awesome book out at the minute called How to Get Great Ideas. Check it out. It's crazy the amount of stuff that you've done. No word of a lie, I had to zoom out about five times on my web browser just so I could take a screenshot of the experience that you had. And I was just like, wow, this is just, how have you had time to, to do all the stuff that you've done? Uh, well, um, by not working for a company. You know, it's, it's cool. also, I think, just being insatiably curious. You see, a lot of people, they, they confuse um, being productive with being busy. Mm-hmm. And these things are very, very different. I think most people in most organizations, they'll tell you they're really busy. They're busy all the time. Yeah, but being busy is very often the opposite of being productive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get a heck of a lot done, and, and part of it is because I'm, I've got a sense of mortality, <laughs> you know, and there's lots yeah, of things yeah. I want to do. Um, totally. Um, part of it is because I'm just insatiably curious. I, I just, I, I'm just so interested in so many different things. Um, but mm-hmm. also, I think once you've got a cycle going once you get into the cycle of making of actually doing stuff then yeah. you the more you do it the more you want to do it the better you get mm-hmm. at doing it and and i think that's kind of what has happened so you know the, there's there's so much uh, that i do um wh- whether it's whether it's writing whether it's making films whether it's yeah, speaking yeah. um i've even certain and animations, illustrations, you know. <laughs> it's crazy to think that, because you're absolutely right, the whole, uh, I think the best way to just go out there and achieve what it is you want to achieve is just to do it. I can't remember where I read it, but it was. It said something like, um, inspiration isn't, mot- isn't motivation, motivation is inspiration. So basically I think what it was trying to say is that when you when you want to get something done or you want to start a project and you start looking at research into basically just trying to inspire you, inspire yourself and and then you know you might just look at inspiration all night rather than actually get around to do it but they say that if you actually just go ahead and do it before you know it you'll just you'll get the ball rolling and it's like a snowball effect and it's before you know it, you're into it and that's what gives you the the motivation and that motivation inspires you and that inspiration gives you motivation. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of... It's true. I, I sort of talk about it in, in, in my book, actually. That there's... Yeah. Um, I talk about the fact that there's a cycle and there's a motivation cycle. And a lot of people mm-hmm. think that they have to have a reason to do something. And yeah. the problem is <clears throat> people will naturally 
be looking for a reason not to do something. So they'll always be mm-hmm. saying, I don't quite know enough. I don't have the skills. People will think I'm stupid. I need to do more research. And, and it's just yeah. a way of putting things off. Oh, absolutely. And as you're saying, the way of getting started is to start. And what mm-hmm. that does is, is if you do something that's a sort of small task that you complete, you get a buzz mm-hmm. when you complete it. And that yeah. buzz gives you an energy that feeds you through the next way around the cycle. And as mm-hmm. you finish that slightly bigger task, you get a slightly bigger buzz, which feeds you again. Um, so it's to start small and start doing this cycle, This uh, the, the, the completion feeds your motivation for the next round of the cycle. So start small yeah. and work your way up. Um, another problem that a lot of people have is they try to start too big. And mm-hmm. they, they, they try and do a massive big project, and that's why it doesn't work for them. Yeah, but I think that's why a lot of startups fail, isn't it? Just because they they bite off more than they can chew, and they think, you know, I can't do this. And there is a, a lot of what I found in marketing and what I see in startups as well, is they think that the whole job is to have everything sorted out for launch. Mm-hmm. So I would find this in, in marketing. So you would have, it, advertising a campaign you come up with a campaign and all the production budget and everything was spent before launch day so that when launch day happened everyone was just like well no more money we're done with that (laughs) on to the next project yeah rather than doing what you should do which is we're going to spend as little of this as possible in creating something that's a minimum viable product a test and we're Mm -hmm. going to see how people respond to it and then we're going to build it according to how people respond to it. Now, at that yeah. point, you're doing, you're testing it to see what works, and then you're growing it in an organic way that, that fits with your audience and that they're going to feel that they're part of as well. Yeah. And that's a far more powerful way of doing it. But instead, ad agencies have got the hangover from the old days when you mm-hmm. used to have to spend everything on a TV ad and yeah. uh, and just get it out there and and that's seeped through the whole of the marketing industry and i don't think it's a wise way of doing it that's a really good way to put it actually how it's just sort of you know spilt into into traditional sort of stuff how's your thought of so when you think of sort of digital marketing how do you think that has an effect on on brands is it something that they should consider first or say if the marketing manager said right we've got 10 grand what are we going to spend it on do you think the the most important option is to maybe consider something for social or consider something for tv or you know advertising in some other way i think with these things, it completely depends on your product. It completely depends on your audience. It depends on the, the mm-hmm. purchase funnel, the purchase cycle that you have. Yeah. I think that a lot of brands have um, focused a lot on digital in recent years, and you know, quite understandably, because they think that it's all about efficiency. How much can I get for my money? So, so they, they fall for this dream of the fact that you can get advertising inventory uh, really cheap. Um, mm-hmm you can target it really well. But the problem is that no matter how well targeted and how well cheap your media is, a piece of shit is still a piece of shit. (laughs) That's so true. It just might be a piece of really well targeted cheap shit. Yeah. But it's shit. 
and and it's something that a lot of the industry seems to have forgotten is that mm -hmm. people will respond to stuff that resonates with them stuff that's good stuff that's interesting stuff that feels like, as if it gives them value but that is not what you're seeing in digital marketing it's really certainly not what i'm seeing in digital marketing and i, I think that in many ways we need to have a bounce back and i think there is in some ways i think some clients are getting this but we need to have a mm -hmm. bounce back from this over focus on technology and these yeah. promises of delivery and trackability and all the rest because it's just mm -hmm. i don't think it's working and i was actually discussing last night with a guy who's written a book on digital marketing um and we were out for dinner and we we're say, saying that actually I'm finding and, and a lot of people I speak to are finding that email campaigns are becoming less and less effective because I oh, don't absolutely. think that I open as many email newsletters as I used to have. So no. if effectiveness is going down, are we about to see direct mail go up again? Because okay. at that point, we can be more experiential with it. We can do stuff that's maybe going to be a bit more hard-hitting and we'll, we'll hang around a bit more. So okay. I don't know. We might see a, a sort of bounce back to, to analog. That could be quite That'll interesting. Be... It's, it's interesting because I um, it's only recently, I think it might have been after this whole GDPR thing, where you now have the option, you might have had the option before, but I've only noticed it in the last six months. If you get an email from a brand and you don't want any emails from them anymore, you just scroll to the bottom and it really, 0.3 font, <laughs> it says unsubscribe yeah. here in like, you know, uh, gray text on a slightly different gray background. So you can hardly see. But there, there, there's even a, a bar that I get at the, the top of my, Mac sometimes on on the, on the top of emails and it just said that this is this is from a mailing list. Spam. Do you want to unsubscribe? Oh, and, well, and there's a bar that show. appears at the top of a lot of emails and my uh, and my Mac mail. Is that because of the the GDPR thing? Do you think? I think it's just that people are getting really tired of <laughs> newsletters. I, I think that's all it, it might is. be. It, maybe it's because they just realise how it, it kind of feels a bit intrusive in my opinion, because you seem to, you use your email for loads of different things like social media and stuff. So I think people feel as though their email is like a bit a part of themselves because they're putting it out there to to host other parts of themselves so that when they're, they're directly contact, uh, contacted through their email, it kind of feels a bit intrusive and a, a bit, you know, sort of, oh, you know, I, I don't want to be receiving this. But if you received, an ad on Facebook, you wouldn't think twice. But it's, it's interesting how it, it's, it's cultural. So, so it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's very different depending where you are. So in China, because they know that the state has so much data about them, to them it's like they know everything anyway. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so the yeah. data is of no value to them. And then you, when it's I crazy. go to Central Europe and particularly to Germany, it's like, no, I will give you no information. I'm giving you no data. I don't want you to hold on to that. And th there's, it, it's not equal throughout the world. It is very, very different according to the, the country and the culture that you're in. That's interesting. I didn't know that. 
So in, say, America, they have different laws to... Well, I'm, I'm assuming they do. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. So, so in America, they're quite okay. Most people are okay about giving their data away. Um, certainly, they're more yeah. comfortable with it than they are in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think it's going to get stricter over here with data and stuff? Uh, that all depends on the, the, the Brexit debacle, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, oh, God. Let's not get into that. Oh, my God. I'm not sure how much battery is on this laptop. <laughs> no, so um, tell me a bit about the Right Thinking Agency. Um, right Thinking is... is it's really it's a process that um, I've I sort of write about in the book here, um, mm-hmm. and it's a process that I've used to help lots of companies in different industries solve problems, get to better solutions. And it's quite simple. It's just okay. a, a mnemonic. So the word "right" stands for um, research, insight, generate ideas, hone ideas, test ideas, and the whole thing really came about awesome. because most companies uh, when I go in and they're asking me to help them with ideas they think mm-hmm. that what you do is you just hold a brainstorm and they do yeah. that without having done any research or got any decent insight they just go straight for the generate ideas so it's no wonder they don't get yeah. anything decent out of it and then at the end oh, of it, they imagine that what they've got from that session is what they then judge um, and, and it's not anyone who's who comes up with ideas knows that you kind of very often get an inkling that there might be something in an idea, but then you have to mm-hmm. develop it. So you have to you have to hone the idea to make it as good it can, as it can be, and to make sure that it answers the uh, the question or solves the problem that you're wanting. And then you really yeah. should be testing it in some way to at least sense check it or be able to get some kind of feedback that you can then take to the decision maker to say that we did some tests and indicatively this is what the results were you know it helps you sell things mm-hmm. in at the end um, so like user research yeah and, and a lot of the time you can do these things quite small you know it doesn't have to have a huge budget to it uh, so mm-hmm. there's things that you can do that are just using facebook friends or people around the office your family but if you actually get feedback from these people and then you know mm-hmm. how to interpret that so don't just take an answer that someone gives you as being the truth you need to interpret it if you understand Mm -hmm. how to do that on a a small scale very often that's all you need to be able to sense check your idea Um, and then of course you'd want to develop it more before you take it to market that makes sense it reminds me of um uh so i work at the med office and we we made a bunch of content and we took to Bristol and we showed it to different age groups and we got their their thoughts and feedback there and then and the the guy who was hosting the day went round each individual and said you know if you had to give that score out of 10 what would you give it why why did you give it that score and as great as it was and it really was insightful there's there's a part of me that thinks those people who are being asked those questions they're not in the same frame of mind as those who are sat on the couch at home scrolling through their feed whilst there's an advert mm-hmm. in the background yeah now, now this this is a classic thing where we misunderstand our audience so so there is there's a fantastic quote from david ogilvy 
that he says that people don't think what they feel. They don't say what they think and they don't do what they say. And, you know, we, we are completely fractured. But there's this compound mm -hmm. problem on top of that. When you're doing research, and, and, you know, I can only speak for my old industry of advertising, really. And there'd be research that'd be happening. There'd be a bunch of strangers you've brought into a room. And they've, um, you know, you, you, you give them a glass of Lambrini and some Pringles. And then you show them some ads. Mm -hmm. And you say, what do you think of this? And do you know the worst thing about asking people's opinion is that they give one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that has an effect. Yeah, but it's valueless very often because mm. these people never usually judge advertising in any way. So, so it's just no. stuff that washes over them. And suddenly you're asking them to give feedback on something they've got no expertise to give feedback on. But that That's doesn't mean true. they won't give feedback. And they will tell you something. They'll tell you very often what they think you want uh, them to hear, or, or they they want you to hear. yeah 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 whatever whichever way around it. Is. So, yeah, they, yeah. Um, so, so they'll very often give you an answer, but the answer can be complete nonsense. And the worst thing is that when the research is done, and then the client looks at it, and the client doesn't interpret the responses, they just believe them. Mm -hmm. And we have to understand that we need to be able to interpret responses, to be able to read between the lines, and also to go, why did they give that decision? Oh, it's because they were being asked for an opinion, and they needed to say something. So they said, uh, it's a bit blue. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's, that's the kind of nonsense you very often get. So, it's, mm, it's, so we have to be careful when we ask people's opinion. We have to make sure that we know how to interpret <laughs> what they're saying. I know, and sort of take it with a pinch of salt as well yeah. and sort of realize what sort of position they're in. And I, I, to be honest, I don't really know the best way to get people's feedback on, on an advert because like you say, people, it just goes over their head. When they, when they come across an advert, they're not being critical of, say, the background color or you know how snappy things were or what ratio it was for that platform. They're just... They're just looking at the advert. If it appeals to them, they they stick on it. If not, they scroll. And I, yeah, it's tricky. It's a uh, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. But yeah, there was. Mm. Do you remember um, Pepperami? A, a few years ago, they had an advertising campaign. Pepperami is a bit of an animal. Now, I remember the adverts they used to do with the um, the salami stick. It used yeah. to run around and yeah. So so the story goes that when they got the people in to do the, the user testing on that, to, mm. to, to do the research. They deliberately ignored what everyone was saying in the room. Wow. Except they listened, because it's a group of strangers that come together and humans are pack animals, there's always a jostling for the top dog position. Yeah. And it happens very quickly. Just in a matter of minutes, someone comes out as, as, as the top dog uh, within yeah. the group. Mm -hmm. So they'd listen to what that person said because they understood that that person was probably a little bit influential within their peer group because they were a, a mouthy git. Um, and so they'd listen to them, but the most important thing was that they listened to what people were saying when they left the research. And of course they were saying, it's a bit of an animal. That's terrible. They can't say that. I mean, this is meat. You can't say it's a bit of an animal. That's just awful. That's sick. Mm-hmm. Everyone was talking about it. They knew it was the right thing to do. 
because <laughs> everyone is talking about it. That's how you measure your success. That's how Absolutely. you get something that is bigger than the media. It's something that spreads and becomes part of the culture. It's almost and, like guerrilla marketing. Yeah, they absolutely nailed it. That was their way of measuring it. And it went from, I can't remember what the statistics were, but I believe it was something like um, before the campaign, about 10% of their market had tried Pepperami. At the end of the campaign, about 10% of the market hadn't. It's something <laughs> like that. It's, it's, it's a wow. complete flip. Um, so it is actually one of the most successful campaigns uh, in advertising in recent years. Did you hear about the... Um the, the Red Bull advert. So, you know, they were putting the strap line, it gives you wings yep. on their ads. Someone actually sued them. That's right. <laughs> Someone sued them. And I remember seeing an advert that they produced a couple months later, and they had specifically put in the strap line, this does not give you wings. <laughs> and now, I, I don't know whether they found a loophole in the system or what, but I've watched it again recently, and they've gone back to... They might have gone back to it gives you wings or something, something very yeah. similar. So, but it just goes to show how sort of people, different people can interpret things differently. Mm. And you shouldn't just, yeah, I don't know. Maybe just people who've got too much time on their hands. <laughs> I think that's exactly it. It's the same people who sue McDonald's because the coffee was too hot and it burnt their lips. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, these people are idiots. And sadly, there's lots of them in the world. And the way that we're running the world, gives these people a voice, sadly. <laughs> it does, but just look at Twitter, it's just, it's crazy. And I wonder, I was thinking this morning, or was it yesterday, I was thinking, I wonder if like Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm not sure who founded Twitter, but I wonder if they think today that their actions back when they uh, brought or started to develop the app or the website or whatever it was, I wonder if they thought, you know, in 10 years' time, this might change the way we live, not only the way we connect with people, but the shift in culture, people's decisions, decision-making uh, through Ooh. advertising. And I wonder if they had that thought back then, and I wonder if they had gone back, if they had the chance to go back, would they do anything different? Because, you know, the, the, yes. crazy. That, that's a good question. I, I, I don't think there's enough... I don't think there's enough uh, concentration on ethics in business. Mm. Uh, something no, that I, I would certainly like to see more of. Um, mm -hmm. People in the marketing industry, I think that they also need to take responsibility. And is this something that is right to advertise? But the problem is, once you start asking these questions, and you go, well, well, we can't really advertise crisps or fizzy drinks. And hold on again. What washing powder is releasing phosphates into the environment, which is causing algal blooms. Mm -hmm. uh, these clothes are um, th these clothes are probably destabilizing economies in in Asia. And, and you, you start to question: Is there anything that's blameless? Oh, absolutely. So uh, tell me a bit about uh, Open for Ideas. So it's an online magazine that explores creativity and innovation in business. Yes, um, I, it's not active anymore. Um, oh, is it, it not? Ran, right, okay. It ran for about a year and a half, and, and it was a bit of an experiment um, and a bit of an exploration. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it was set up 
I guess to try and demystify creativity and innovation because that's really what my remit is, is to try and do that. And mm -hmm. I got lots of fantastic people to write articles from different points of view. So I got psychologists, I got one of the guys who, um, who was actually an, an insider during the time that Kodak kind of like uh, screwed up and went under. Wow. Yeah. So he was an innovation consultant that saw how it all went wrong. <laughs> so he wrote a piece and then, you know, we, um, so, so it was exploring both innovation and creativity from lots of different points of view. And to me, it was, it was a wonderful experiment um, to get, it's out of my curiosity a lot of the time, really, I was asking people to write things that I was interested in hearing about from them. Mm -hmm. So we got, um, I think probably got about 100, 150 articles or something like that in the time that wow. it was um, active. And, and these articles, they weren't like, you know, like a lot of the stuff you find on the web, it wasn't like, hey, seven great things to make you more creative. <laughs> you want to believe number three. <laughs> Stick around to the end. And I don't Please. know why I went Australian for that. But, <laughs> but, but they're, 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 yeah, it's like, it, it wasn't any of that clickbait nonsense. It was stuff that had mm. actual depth to it, and that's what we were aiming for. Yeah. So to me, it was, a, it, it was great and actually challenged a lot of my own thinking around about the areas of creativity and innovation and I learned a lot so I love the I love the whole idea of psychology behind the creativity and like the way or the reason people do the things that they do when they see the things that they see and that could just be from responding to an advert or it could be feeling an emotion yeah in some and, sort of way and we'd like to think that being creative you know, it's, it's all about being free and making these decisions and, you know, it's, it's, it's about exploring. Mm -hmm. And there's a fantastic Darren Brown uh, show from, it must be, it's been more than 10 years ago, maybe about 15 years ago. And he oh, got okay. a couple of guys in an ad agency and he gave them a brief. And at the end of it, as they presented their ideas, he then opened an envelope and showed his ideas and they were exactly the same. And what he said, do you want to see how I did this? And he showed that he had placed things round about. He had had them in a taxi journey and, and taken them a certain way, which meant that they were seeing things as they went. And all mm -hmm. of that stuff fed into their head and became the ingredients for their ideas. Wow. And what's fascinating about that is that it shows that it's not the process. We like to think um, that creative people well, I used to like to think, I hate it now, I used to like to think that creative people were maybe special in some way, that they had their, their brain worked in a particular way and that made them special and it's all about the processing. Mm -hmm. And the more that I've looked into it, the more I realize that that's complete bullshit. <laughs> that you've got input, process, output, and the thing that defines the output most is the input. Mm -hmm. And it's really what that Darren Brown experiment showed is that he was able to give them certain pieces of input and that totally defined the output, which means so, that the, pro the process is secondary. So almost like manipulating, kind of. Yeah, yeah, but, but mm. this is the whole thing and it's why I think ideas are in the ether and quite a few people come up with similar ideas at the same time mm -hmm. because we're all in the media getting similar kind of input. Yeah.
That's a really good point, and <laughs> leads really well into my next question. <laughs> so the books. So I was doing my research, obviously, and I found out that you you say that you accidentally written one of your books. How did that work? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, 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 that was the first book that I did. So that was about eight years ago, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of like to test out new pieces of software when they come along. So Apple had brought out something called iBooks Author because iBooks was going to be their next big thing. And it was all about interactive books. So I thought, oh, I want to test out this, this uh, software. So I started to get some things that I'd written in the past. So from sort of previous agencies that I'd been in, I'd written guides for the creative department, you know, yeah. how to come up with ideas and stuff. Um, and I just started to bring that in. And I thought, oh, I could illustrate this with stuff and put in case studies and examples. So I started to bring in films and do illustrations and create interactive pieces for it. And I created this really lovely interactive um, Apple iBook. And then I went to publish it. And Apple went, what's your IRS number? I was like, I don't have an IRS number. I live in the UK. Um, can I find a way around this? And I emailed and got nothing back for days. And eventually, no, you need to have an IRS number public. I was like, but I'm not in the States. Oh, you can apply for an IRS number. Oh, and then have to pay money to the American taxman as well as the British taxman? I don't think so. Yeah. So I, I decided not to go ahead and do it. And I was left with all this content that I'd brought together and extra bits that I'd written to make it make mm -hmm. sense. But, well, stuff it. I'm going analog. <laughs> and I, I thought I'm going to output this somehow and just decided to do it in print. Mm -hmm. So I rewrote parts of it to work for print. And I brought that book out a few years ago and it um, ended up being quite popular and sort of recommended reading list for ad schools and things like that. Awesome. Um, and then that kind of got me a reputation as an author, even though it didn't deserve to because it takes you about half an hour to read. So, you know, it's, it's a... It's, it's a it's a glorified pamphlet, you know. <laughs> um, but then I, I actually kind of, the last year, it became a bit silly, and, and I was involved in seven books last wow. year. Um, and oh, yeah, because you, uh, you contributed to a few, didn't you? You didn't just write your own. Yeah, so, so I, I co-wrote this one here, Iconic Advantage, that Looks came awesome. out about a year ago just now. Cool. And I co-wrote that with my friend Sun Yu. We're about to spend tomorrow filming all day together. He's in London. He usually nice. lives in San Francisco, but he's in London tomorrow. Um, awesome. So, so that's a, that, that's a book all about a better approach to innovation, which mm -hmm. is about using innovation as a growth mechanism for your company rather than as a high-risk, high-cost uh, gamble which is yeah. what it tends to be for most companies. Um, and then towards the end of the year, I brought out um, how to get to great ideas. Awesome. Um, and that was just me that wrote that. So that's um, 50,000 pages of me <laughs> explaining what I think people get wrong about creativity, um, yeah. explaining uh, the right thinking system so that people can use that to help them come up with better ideas, explaining what individuals can do to get better ideas and explaining what organizations can do to get better ideas out of their staff. Okay. So um, it seems to be doing quite well. Um, it just came out in India last week. In two weeks' time, it comes out in, or a month's time, it comes out in America. 
then it comes out awesome. in China and then Russia. And <laughs> so, how, so how does that work then? That whole process is there is there a publisher involved, or I'm not quite sure. Yes, the, this this one here is Hodder and Stoughton. So um, through right. one of their imprints, which is Nicholas Breeley, um, which is a business book imprint that they've got. So so that so yeah, all of the books last year were done through um, proper publishers. So none of the books last year were self-published. They were all professionally published. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, and then. I've got uh, my user guide to the creative mind, the one that I wrote years ago, I'm about to bring out again, but that's self-publish. And then I'm in talks about doing another couple of books. So oh I seem God. to become a writer and, and I <laughs> didn't intend to be. <laughs> that's crazy. Did you, so are you gonna upload uh, these books up to uh, iTunes to create eBooks or have you just given up on that? Oh, uh, they're. I think they're all available as ebooks. So, so oh, they are. Naturally, okay. naturally become Kindles, um, and then they're, they're iBooks as well. So the uh, the issue that you're having with Apple uploading, it was just the way it was at the beginning eight oh, years ago it? when they started iBooks. Um, ah. Now it's completely sorted, and and they're dealing directly with publishers and all the rest. And there's a system that you automatically get put into their bookstore right. if you're professionally published. Then you know it's fine now. I created an app uh, around about seven years ago, maybe. And it was just a personal project of mine. I didn't really want to make any money from it. But if I did, then obviously that would be nice. It was around about the, do you remember the Flappy Bird? Oh, yeah. The Flappy Bird app? It was around about that time. And um, so I created an app. I think I might have been at university still. And when I went to upload it, the the upload process for Apple is just insane. Mm -hmm. The amount of documents you've got to read through, the amount of things you've got to sign, the amount of, it just seems like they're trying to worm their way around, like anything, you know, legal as such. Oh yeah. And it's it's not reassuring at all when you're, when you're uploading something. I ended up having to pay 80 pound a year just to host the app on, iTunes, on um, mm -hmm. the app store. I ended up taking it down because I just thought it's not, it's not worth it, but, and then, I, and then I started to think if I was getting money through advertising, then how would I then claim that money back from Apple and how would the whole tax thing work? And they didn't make it easy at all. I don't know whether things have changed since. I but. don't think so, but it still hasn't stopped them um, getting over a million apps in the store. <laughs> oh, God. It, I, I would have thought the whole market would have been saturated by now, to be honest. Well, I, I thought it was saturated back then when I was making it, but I, I thought it would have got to the point not where it had collapsed, but where it wasn't so popular anymore. So Dean, when was the last time that you downloaded an app? This morning. Ooh, that's quite impressive. <laughs> I, I downloaded Skype because I wanted to see if I could Skype call instead of use this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but apart from the last time I downloaded an app, apart from that, uh, God, I can't remember. But it feels... It feels like an inconvenience if you're being asked to download an app. Oh, yeah. 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 But they're asking for two minutes of your time. And to, mm. that, that's quite a lot of time to, for someone, but you remember I guess. At, the, at the beginning, it was different. It was like, oh, I'm getting something for free. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, massive. I remember um, the, one of the first apps to come out on iPhone. It was called iPint. 
and yep. you downloaded it and you used to hold a, a pint and like it used to fill the screen then you used to pretend to drink it and it used to vanish and i was like oh my god whoa this is crazy this is gonna be the future but uh um, yeah yeah rest in peace i pint <laughs> It was. It, it's weird because you, you're telling me about everything that you've done and stuff, and I think it's awesome that you've been able to make a living from what it is that that you do. And it's sort of when I think about getting into an industry which I love, I sort of think back to when I was in school and when I decided to take art and graphic design and music and all the things that I just wanted to do there and then. I didn't really have yeah. a, an idea of where it was going to take me. I just wanted to do things that were fun and I enjoyed. And when I finished my GCSEs, I thought, oh shit, how am I going to get a career? Like I've just spent the last God knows how long fucking about. I, d I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I spent the last, I spent the next two to three years maybe just thinking what I'd done had been a waste and there was no way to progress from my GCSEs and what I'd learned during them and you know the the passion that I had for those subjects I never thought I'd be able to take that and pursue it as a career and then I I remember I went into this uh it was like a job center and I seen a, an advert for uh, an apprenticeship graphic designer and I was like what what the, a graphic designer really strange and then for it's it's so I'm basically saying from that moment on I was I was sort of thinking you know, maybe there is a path. Maybe there is a way to do the things that you want to do. And it's sort of, it's a bit of a, I think the creative industry is a bit of a gray area because when someone thinks creativity, or maybe not everyone, they think that there's no right or wrong way to do something. And there's, there's no way that you can be doing what you're doing that's better than me because creativity is just something that lies in the brain. You have an idea, I also have an idea. Why is your idea more creative than mine? And it it just sort of stands out to me. That's where I'm getting at. I'm going down another rabbit hole. Yeah, but it's it's interesting you saying that you didn't you didn't realize that there was a there was a journey open to you. Mm. And and the whole thing is I think there's a flaw with education is that we're taught that it's about a destination. That, that you do your qualifications mm -hmm. and then boom you can step into a role that is the, is the right kind of role and yeah maybe that works when there's vocational stuff yeah and and you would go and you would you would learn um how to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever and yeah. then at the end of the university there's a logical step for you to take into that career to do your vocation but it doesn't tend to be like that and and for me i I was quite similar in that I was interested in lots of different things and I was at university and I'd done a degree in computer programming and advanced mathematics and then cool. I did a postgraduate degree in marketing and management and then I'd always thought that what I would do is that I would do a degree so it's something to fall back on if music didn't work out for me yeah. and I wanted to be a musician so I the bizarre thing happened that I was getting to the end of the course and I actually just wanted a job. I was doing my sort of second degree and I, and I, 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 I just wanted a job. <laughs> and instead I got, um, 
I got an offer from a record label in Scotland. Wow. And they they wanted me to go and be, I'd already been working as a session musician for some of their bands, and they wanted me to go and work for them as a, a recording engineer and a session musician and, and help with sort of marketing of the label. Yeah. And I went and did that, and it's kind of like, surely that should have been my dream job. But I started it, and within six weeks, I just didn't enjoy it. No? <laughs> it's not what I wanted to do at all. Did you, think, <laughs> did you think you knew whilst you were doing it that it wasn't what you wanted to do? I was getting that pretty quickly, and I think a yeah. lot of it is to do with the people that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt as if I wasn't... I was being put down rather than raised up by the people I was working with, and that, yeah. that was... That was a difficult thing. So, so mm-hmm. I made a decision to leave music, um, that kind of full-time music behind. Uh, then I became uh, like a, an AA Roadwatch broadcaster, you know, sort of doing the, um, doing the travel announcements on the breakfast show. Oh, um, nice. You know, okay, a, cool. You know, there's a, there's a tailback of three miles on the M8, you know, all that, all that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, yeah. And then I became, I was working for, as a musician for a, a theatre show, and then... While I was doing that, I ended up accidentally becoming a stand-up comedian and ended up closing the, the show with half an hour of stand-up every week. And um, eventually, I was going through this journey of just doing things that interested me mm-hmm. until eventually I fell into advertising. That's weird. Um, you should say that. I, I mean, it's probably best to talk about employment since we're on the subject. So I've got them written down here, everything that you, all the creative things that you've done. So mm-hmm. musician, illustrator, stand-up comedian, poet, radio DJ, television presenter, advertising creative director, author, and public speaker. Yeah, I mean, you've not got nude model in there, do you? Nude model? Oh, I did see nude model as well. Yeah. Um, should have had um, nude model in there. Um veterinary assistant um you know busker all, all sorts of stuff you know i've 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 done lots of different things and i don't i don't regret it no in, not fact, at all. in fact i started at one point in my career when i was hiring people as a creative director i started to be really suspicious of people who had only ever done advertising <laughs> because to me you're not giving me broad enough uh, life understanding yeah. If that's all you've ever done, then I'm afraid that I don't believe that you've actually got enough experience in here mm-hmm. to properly to, to connect with people or, or, or come at this from some kind of interesting angle. Uh, so I was interested in people with more interesting backgrounds. So I would tend to hire people who were doers, people who were graffiti artists, cake decorators, Mm-hmm. You know, it's people had started up their own fashion label, that kind of stuff, because these people to me were more interesting. They actually, you know, they they, were, they knew how to complete things. They had passions that were broader than just the industry, and all of mm-hmm. that stuff to me meant that they had a bigger brain, a, a wider experience, more knowledge. That mm-hmm. that stuff that they could then bring into their work and come up with far more interesting ideas than people who were like insular about I'm doing advertising, therefore it has to look like advertising, you know? Absolutely, I think it definitely helps just having that life experience and then just going into a creative role like that and taking that experience with you and the journey and what you've learned. And I, I think it helps with a lot of things. I think it helps with 
uh, like relationships, I think, uh, like your social circle. Or what are you saying? The more people you've dated, the fact that you have slagged about Dean, is this what you're saying? <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> but it seems that the more sort of experience that you do get in something, then the, the next thing that you sort of go for, you just, you hit it harder and you, you understand yourself a little bit more. And, and I think that that's something that should be taught at school. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think that we are teaching kids to be ready for the marketplace because surely that's what the job of advertising is, is to get uh, young people ready to enter the world of work so that they can add value to the economy and value to themselves. Yeah. And uh, we should also be teaching them to be good members of society, but we appear to have completely forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. But the thing that we need to be teaching kids is how to adapt because we know that any job they have now will be changing over time mm -hmm. and it might yeah. be that even the industry completely changes it might be that new jobs come along because you know there's all sorts of statistics that people have made up over the last few years you know that by by 20 30 70 percent of the world's jobs haven't even been invented yet all that kind of stuff yeah mm -hmm. I, I I just made that number up, but it's probably just as accurate as the other ones that other people have made up. Um, <laughs> Would surprise me. So there is a certain amount of truth in it that there are jobs that have come around that certainly in my lifetime that I've seen. And, you know, really in the last 15 years, we've seen uh, user experience and come out of information architecture. And, and, and these things, it didn't exist previously as a career. And, and the skill set was something that people had to pivot from something they'd already done to be able to do that. So very often it was designers who had a very logical mind were the ones that became the great UX thinkers. Um, and then uh, strategists as well started to get in involved. So maybe sort of comms strategists would, would get involved in UX as well. So, so it's become a completely new job that people have had to pivot to be able to do, to be able to adapt existing skills, uh, to be able to, to fit into this opportunity. And there's going to be lots more of that stuff coming around. And it's so important that we teach people how to adapt, how to be able to learn from what they've already done, and then be able to take that and turn it into something that they can make a living out of, something mm -hmm. that they can add value to a company with because maybe the, the old thing they're doing isn't as valuable anymore. So I this know. ability to pivot and adapt is so important and we're not teaching kids how to do it. And it's so important that we do it. Kind of, it kind of feels like there's this fairy tale lifestyle to be lived, you know, and it's very traditional. And it's that you go to school, you learn a subject, you then leave school, do that subject for a living, get married, have kids uh, and die. And it's kind well, of like we'll, we'll, we'll retire first and then die. I think the old way of doing it. Uh, ideally, yeah, I, I think yeah. now you're probably right. We don't bother with the retirement, but you just go straight for death. Yeah. You just go straight from kids to death. Yeah, I think so. Instantly. Yeah, do not pass go. But <laughs> no, but it, it's weird to think that five years ago things started to change, or maybe even longer than five years ago, in that people started to understand that they've got more life choices 
and they're able to do the things that they actually want to do and they don't have to be forced into doing something that they don't want to do and it i think it's the same with like having uh, a passion about a subject that you know traditionally your your parents or grandparents have never heard of so say if if i haven't got any children but if i did and and they said they wanted to get into social media and i didn't know what social media was i would laugh and i would say what you're getting into social media why are you getting into social media there's nothing there do you know what i mean whereas now social media is like huge it's crazy mm. I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there is this thing that certainly my my father has never really had much of an understanding, really, of what I've done. Um, I I was brought up in a very religious family, and I made the mistake a few years ago of showing my father my portfolio um, of, of advertising ideas. And it was only as I was showing my father this that I realized that, oh, man, at least half of the stuff in here is just knob gags. <laughs> I hadn't realized. Um, oh, brilliant. But I think my father then just got the, the, the idea that, yeah, I know what he does now is just filth. <laughs> but uh, I know what you mean. But there is, there is a thing. I've got a, a 19-year-old daughter at the moment. Yeah. And... I mean, I've got her at the moment. I've got, I've got her for life, apparently. <laughs> I can't do anything about it. So, so no. um, she has decided, and I completely support her on it, she's decided that she doesn't want to go to university. So mm-hmm. she started off on that route, and then after a year went, no, this isn't for me. And I completely yeah. support her because, actually, I felt the pressure when I started university that I had to stick with it. And, oh and yeah, it, I bet a lot of people did. It didn't really help me, so I did mm. uh, four years at university, and it didn't really help me. And in fact, I didn't even tell people throughout my career that I had any qualifications. And people were usually quite surprised when they found out how qualified I actually was. <laughs> the, fir- the first thing was, oh, "You're you're educated, really?" <laughs> Hang on a minute, what's going on? So, how did you get into um, nude modelling? Oh, that, sort of throw that in there. That, that was that was an experience. That, that that's what happens when you've got your first job in advertising, and mm-hmm. you're in it for about nine months, and then you get made redundant, and then you struggle to get a job. And yeah. I was then out of work for about nine months again, you know, and and it was absolutely demoralising. All the all the letters that I wrote. I was just getting rejected for if I got a letter, you know, back then in the in the early nineties. If I got a letter, course, it was yeah. a rejection. But you know, you're only getting about a third of them would even bother responding to you with a letter. So yeah, it's terrible. Um, so it was a terribly demoralizing time, and I just started trying to pick up whatever work I could. And mm-hmm. across from my mum and dad in Glasgow, there was an artist, and my dad was saying how I was just looking for any work that could help bring in a little bit of money at the time. And this artist said, oh, I've got some work for him. He could come and help me and be a a model for one of my um, sculptors. Okay, great. So I went along and 
This is in December in a garage in Glasgow, okay? No, this, is, this is cold, all right? Um, right. Okay, first of all. Um, no heating. Uh, there was a one-bar electric fire taking it Not from freaking cold to just <laughs> freaking cold. Um, so, yeah. so he hands me this tub of Vaseline that looks oh as if it's like a normal tub of Vaseline, but really close up. You know, you've never seen a tub of Vaseline that size before. <laughs> um, put your hand in, and, and so he said, right, first of all, do your, do your feet. Uh, cover them in Vaseline. So I cover them in Vaseline. He put plaster over my feet. It heats up, which is lovely, and then it cools, yeah. and that's when you know it's gone hard. And he pulls it off, and he goes, oh, fantastic. These are great, wonderful. Do your legs now. So I so Vaseline my legs, and... Um, he puts the plaster cast on, it goes hot, goes cold, pulls it off, goes, oh, these are great, fantastic. He said, right, I'll turn the other way. You just do from, <laughs> from there up to your neck. And just, oh, wow. he said, just be liberal with the, the Vaseline. Just, so, so here, I'm Vaselining myself up um, completely, you know, just everything that I could. Um, and then he mm -hmm. puts the plaster over me. And then he takes the last slops from the bucket and he pours it on. He said, I just want to make sure there's enough plaster here. And I think that was the mistake. This guy was legit, right? Yeah. I, th I, think, I think that was the mistake, <laughs> though, because it went hot and then it went cold. And he said, right, this is a lot of plaster, so let's leave it for a couple of minutes more. And then he went to pull it off. And it's like, ah, it's like, what's wrong? I said, my, my chest hair is... It's caught in the plastic. And he's like, no, 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 you're kidding me. You put on lots of Vaseline. He's like, yeah. And he went to tug at it. He's like, ah, no, seriously, my chest hair is caught in it. And so he got some long-bladed scissors and sort of put it down the, sort of the front of the, the plaster cast and then sort of ripped the rest off. And then when we went to pull the bottom part off, it just like, oh, no, I am completely oh. at one with the plaster. Um, so I, I did what any sensible um, boy in their early 20s would do, and uh, I, I, I fainted on his garage floor. And, oh, my God. And uh, he went and, and got my father, and my father came in, and there's his son lying naked face down on a garage. You know, so it's, it's, <laughs> Was it was this before or after he'd seen your portfolio? <laughs> oh, this is before. Yes, I think <laughs> at that point he should have been worried. Um, <laughs> and we nearly had to go to hospital to get this removed. We, we managed to kind of like pry up the the plaster at the side and get some scissors and just let like snip blindly and go. Yep, I don't think I cut myself there. Yep. Oh. And then we just wrenched it off, and that was. Uh, yeah, ended up being uh, a statue, a naked, lying down, reclining <laughs> statue of me in a children's <laughs> museum in Glasgow. Oh. And there was little um, things that you'd wind at the side, and you wound this bit round, ee, ee, and a little drawer would come out, and it would go, spleen, and there'd be a picture of a spleen. So this now lives in a children's museum. I believe it's now in a landfill because that children's museum has closed down. And right? Did they say why? No, just <laughs> I went hunting for it a few years ago. The Hags Children's Museum in Glasgow, and mm. yeah, um, it had gone. It had shut down a few years. Oh, so it wasn't for the reasoning. It, it wasn't for the uh, the sculpture. And it that was could there. very well have been. This sculpture could have been the thing that was the nail in the coffin for this museum. Um, so, 
Oh, I don't think it would have been. <laughs> right, Dave, I, I, would, I would love to sit here and speak to you all night. I genuinely would. We'll, we'll have to do it again. Fantastic. That sounds good to me. Thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. You. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Dave. Thanks.